Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. I'm your host, Carrie Parker, and we've got an interview show for you today, one I've been promising to you for a little while. In fact, it's the first of a two-part episode uh, where we're going to be talking with Richard Stokes. He's the CEO and founder of a company called Winston Privacy. Uh, very, very interesting device that this man has uh, created with his company, and we're going to talk all about it. Um, so before I get there, though, I do have one little news item I don't want to wait three weeks to tell you about. So if uh, you're a Mac user and you use the service Zoom uh, for video conferencing uh, over the web, you're going to want to make this change because there's a bug in the Zoom app right now that basically would let any malicious website turn on your webcam. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's as bad as it sounds. And from what I read so far, Zoom is for some reason not too keen on fixing this. I'm not sure I get that. Um, but uh, in the meantime, what you can do to at least protect yourself is go to the Zoom app. It should be in your application folder somewhere. Launch the Zoom.us app and then go to the you know the Zoom menu, go to the preferences, and then go to the video tab. And then on the right-hand side, there's a little section there called Meetings, and there's a checkbox for Turn Off My Video When Joining a Meeting. So if you at least check that, it should mean that your camera can't auto, um, won't start automatically recording you if you happen to this website. So if you, for some reason, did go to a malicious website that tried to trigger your camera to start, this should prevent that from happening. So in the meantime, uh, that is your best workaround, and I want to make sure I got that in uh, before we started this interview. So... Uh, otherwise, like I said, it would be three weeks before I get to my regular news show. So now uh, I'm really excited about this interview. I've been wanting to talk to him for a little bit. I learned about him through Twitter and a Kickstarter campaign that Richard had for this little box called a Winston privacy box. And it's kind of it's kind of privacy in a box. Uh, it's really interesting what they're doing with this. But Richard has some uh, really interesting stories to tell because he. He, he came from the dark side. He was in the ad tech industry. Uh, he owned an ad tech company. And and finally, a couple of years ago, got to the point where some of these people were making presentations to him about, here's all the things that we can track about people. And it just was too much. And he was like, okay, this has gone too far. And uh, he flipped the script. And now he is on the other side of this equation. And he's producing a box that will help all of us um, pretty much seamlessly turnkey appliance type way of guarding our privacy. But uh, in this first part of the interview, we're going to talk to him about how he got where he is today, uh, get some of that history, that interesting history about why he quit working for the ad industry and now is basically kind of working against it, or at least the, you know, the, at least the anti-privacy part of it. There's nothing wrong with ads um, and looking at ads. The problem is when those ads watch you back. So uh, I will warn you, uh, for some reason, and I don't know if this was on my end or his, we did have a little bit of a connection issue, so I, I apologize. There will be some glitches uh, in the audio from time to time. I did my best to clean them up, uh, but there are still some in there that I could not avoid. So I apologize for the audio quality every once in a while. It might be a little off, um, but it's really interesting of you. So uh, without further ado, let's go to part one of my really fascinating interview with Richard Stokes from Winston Privacy. <laughs> And with us today is Richard Stokes. He's the CEO and founder of Winston Privacy, which he founded in response to the increasing abuses of privacy taking place in the ad tech industry. Uh, previously, he was the founder of AdGuru.com and global head of innovation for Kantar Media. Welcome to the show, Richard. Thanks for having me. So this is so interesting, and I can't wait to dig, dig into this. You were actually part of the ad web industry for some time, um, and obviously with founding AdGuru, uh, until something happened. 
uh, which made you decide to switch teams, so to speak. So uh, please walk us through that progression. What happened? Yeah, so I'm a serial entrepreneur. I've been in the ad tech industry for about 14 years. Um, I founded a company called AdGuru in 2004, and we were surveilling search engines, um, most notably Google. And it's kind of funny because uh, I know firsthand how much Google likes to protect their own privacy uh, and yet invade others. Right. Um, anyway, so I sold, uh, I, I sold AdGuru in 2012 to what was effectively the world's largest ad agency. And I stayed on to run it, but I also became the global head of innovation for their media intelligence division. And so it was in that role that I got this perspective uh, but, uh, into the entire ad tech ecosystem. And I saw what they were doing. Um, now, I like to say like, that the ad tech industry is generally not full of bad people who are just trying to track every move. It's, it's really full, just like tech, of good people who don't see the big picture. And mm -hmm. it's sort of a systemic problem where they try to one-up each other. You know, mm -hmm. the ad tech industry is highly competitive. And so what I saw in my past life there was these technologies growing increase in, increasingly invasive and tracking people um, more and more to the point where um, really had to do something about it. It was in early 2017, um, where a couple of companies came in to demo their platforms. And for me, this was the tipping point where I, I conclusively knew the ad tech industry um, had crossed a line that it could never uncross. Mm -hmm. And so that first um, person opened up their demo by pulling up his own record on their platform. And you can see he was into um, craft brewing. That was the thing that really stands out for me. But you can also see you know, political leanings and income uh, and so on. And this is all something you just pull up on an wow. individual basis. The second demo was maybe a little more disturbing. Um, it was a demo given by a, um, a geofencing company, which tracks people's locations. And they opened up by showing a picture of San Francisco, and there was a red line circling around the city with call-outs stopping at different places. And they said, hey, you know, what can you infer about this person, you can see, you know, there's a call out at a school in the morning and uh, spent a few minutes at a Starbucks and a yoga studio and so on throughout the day. By the end of this day in the life, you can see, well, this was uh, clearly a mother with at least one small child. And you can see where she lived, for instance, and where she was going all the time. I said, imagine we have this every day for just about every person in the U.S., right? <laughs> How valuable is that? Um, and so I just decided at that point, I'm like, you know what, this is not a world I want my kids growing up in. So mm -hmm. I began looking at the other side of the equation and, you know, looking at the history of privacy and do people really want to do this. Uh, do they, do they want to protect their privacy and where they willing to take steps and so on? And, you know, it was in late 2018 where I left the ad tech industry and I said, Hey, you know what? I was doing this. I felt that people really did want to do things to protect themselves. But there were just different obstacles in the way. And so probably the most common obstacle I encountered in those early days uh, with investors was, hey, you know, that sort of misconception where people say, uh, does anybody really care about this? Mm -hmm. Well, it was in April of 2018 when Cambridge Analytica broke, and that changed everything. So two months later, we were funded, and you know, the rest is history. Wow. Yeah, that I'm glad that that did open a lot of eyes. That was certainly, I mean, for me, it was a Snowden revelation. So I really thought everything was going to change after that. And that just didn't seem to go anywhere. But yeah, I think somehow the Cambridge Analytica thing struck a bigger nerve somehow. Um, so 
all these companies that were doing these, these data brokers and things, these guys that were presenting to you and the companies that they and the products they were producing, do they, I mean, obviously they probably all had privacy policies, but that somehow this, these were staying within the letter of these privacy policies? You know, generally speaking, yes. I, I know of a few instances of companies that deviated pretty significantly from the privacy policies. And, you know, there's pretty well publicized cases uh, with settlements with the uh, FTC and so on. But for the most part, I, I think, you know, the standard strategy is to collect the data that you need to collect and hide behind click wrap. So click wrap is, you know, an end user license agreement of some sort. It says you agree to this in exchange for using our service. You know, you, you, you give us rights to your entire life um, effectively. And, you know, everybody knows that consumers don't read this. Um, right. Nobody goes through this stuff. Uh, you know, it's a dog and pony show. There was a, there was a recent study as a federal study, I believe, where uh, they estimated that it would take the average consumer 78 business a year to review all the different um, license agreements and privacy policies um, that they agreed to. Wow. So, you know, clearly that, that's a, a, a big scam. 78 days? That's that's like solid. Wow. Um, so do you still, do you personally? That's almost, that's almost as long as it takes to do my taxes. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah, that's, an, <laughs> that's another one. Um, do you still have friends in the ad industry? Have you convinced any of them to leave that it's time to get out? Or are they like you kind of had an epiphany and decided that it was time to get out? So I can count the number of people on one hand who have actually led left the ad tech industry over this. Um, usually the case though is, you know, about a third of my network, I would say has secretly bought a Winston, uh, because they know how invasive the ad tech industry is, but they can't do anything about it, uh, professionally other than protect them, themselves and their families from it. Um, the rest, I would say probably the majority of my network either doesn't talk about it at all or actively deny it. They say, look, this is not a problem. You know, people are crazy. This is overblown conspiracy theory stuff right you know this is just you know nobody should be concerned about this and you know that's what you would expect from people um who make their living doing this so how since you've left in the time you've left have you seen things gotten worse have things fundamentally changed at all in some of this uh, uh ad tech tracking well you know i've seen a couple of big changes um gdpr is the biggest mm -hmm. uh thing that's taken place in the last couple of years it forced companies like Google to turn away from, from tracking people with cookies to other forms of tracking. So I don't know how big of a change that is, but as an example, you know, they, in the EU, they don't rely on cookie tracking. They rely on IP address, uh, IP addresses. So it's kind of a step backwards mm -hmm. in tracking, but they've also developed a lot of other ways uh, of tracking individuals that most people aren't aware of. Um, the other big change that I see really this year um, is a sudden pivot to privacy. It's like all these surveillance companies have suddenly found religion and they're all mm, privacy mm. friendly. And now you should really, really trust us. Right. But they were always <laughs> saying this, you know, they are out to protect their business models and do the least damage possible to their bottom line. You know, privacy is really just sort of a, a headwind for them. Yeah. I mean, you know, to some degree, you know, these in a capital society when you've got a public company that's got quarterly earnings to report and everybody's expecting growth. I mean, you know, at some level, this is the, the rational optimization of, of your business model is to eke out everything you can. And so if in one sense, you can't blame them, <laughs> but you know, and then there's ethics, right. <laughs> which is, you know, it, it doesn't come into play usually when you're looking at your finance sheets. So, um, 
so you, you mentioned this earlier, and I want to ask your opinion. Did, so do you think people really care about privacy? And if so, why is it that so few people, t- few people seem to take you know, any kind of concrete steps to protect themselves? Is it, is it apathy? Is it ignorance? Or is it maybe just like perceived impotence? Yeah, so, so people almost universally care about their privacy. Um, you know, in our own internal studies, it's 90% plus of people who say they really care about this. Now, a much lower percentage of them actually do anything about it. It's higher than you think. Right. Uh, Pew, um, you know, the well-known research company, they have a study that they update every few years. And I think the last one, they said 61% of people say that they would actually do something if they uh, knew how. Right. And we all know that there's privacy tools and there's ways to do things, um, but they're just really not accessible. And so, you know, these solutions are inherently complex. And so my typical conversation with a privacy geek, and I mean that in a good way, um, goes (laughs) like, um, you know, I say, hey, you know, we're trying to make privacy really easy. And they'll say, hey, privacy already is easy. All you got to do is install a VPN and a cookie blocker an anti-fingerprinting solution, and then you need an encrypted partition. You also need a PGP key to use email. You should probably use that with ProtonMail, uh, and then just make sure you're using Tor Network and the browser, right? So nobody cares about this stuff. People want simple solutions to protect their privacy. It's even better if there are laws and uh, regulations in place, which help with those, as we all know, are going to be a starting point um, the problem is much bigger than we think. Um, and they're all going to, that's only going to afford us a certain amount of protection. Um, so the answer is yes, people really do care about the privacy, but solutions that are out there are really sufficient for the average person. Well, I'm guessing too, that certainly a lot of people don't still, uh, even as you said, friends of yours in the ad industry don't still fully comprehend, um, the, the, the threats here to the, the privacy. So I'm just curious from your perspective on a scale of one to 10, how, how much, how well do you think that people really understand the current th- threats to their privacy online? One. Yeah. yeah right. Yeah. That's what I figured. Somewhere, somewhere low, but yeah, I wouldn't argue with one. Um, <laughs> in your, <laughs> that's been my experience too. Uh, and it, so do you see any in your studies that when you've done your market research, do you see any generational or demographic differences in the, in the desire for privacy? Yeah, certainly. The cutoff seems to be late 20s, early 30s, and that's what people are caring. Um, I think I'm not 100 percent sure of this, but I think that correlates roughly with, you know, having a family. Right. So mm-hmm. people who have kids tend to become more aware of privacy just because they're concerned about how it affects their children more than how it affects them personally. It's kind of like going to the dentist. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Interesting. What about demographically or maybe geographically? I mean, did, is, is, uh, Europe, I mean, Europe has always been kind of, it seems ahead of us, you know, regulation wise, but is that because it's a cultural thing there too? Um, what, what about those kind of differences? Well, yeah. So historically speaking, uh, Europe has seen the effect of invasions of privacy, right, over the last century. Um, so you see very high sensitivity to this in Germany, um, but pretty much all countries in Western Europe, um, we see a tremendous amount of demand there, um, even more than the U.S. But it's high in the U.S. now as well. I think Cambridge Analytica really shocked a lot of people. Yeah, yeah, I think I, I agree, and I hope you're right. Um, so you've also mentioned regulation, um, and there has been some, um, nothing, nothing here in the U.S. yet, but we'll talk about that in a sec. Um, but there has been some, and there's, you know, there was GDPR, which you mentioned, which is the European uh, General Data Protection Regulation. 
um, which is why we all got spammed with updates to privacy policies last May <laughs> when it went into effect. Yes. Uh, but California's uh, uh, passed something recently, too, and Maine as well just passed something. What effect, of any, has this had on data collection and tracking? So the effect, uh, there's been almost none on data collection itself, and that's the elephant in the room. So let's mm-hmm. take GDPR, for instance. It's primarily resulted in cookie warnings, right, and pop-ups that you agree to <laughs> right. um, allow them to track you. And that's been the practical effect. I think there's been some good effects, you know, with email, uh, marketing, and so on. Um, certainly that's where there's been a big payoff. But on the data collection side, um, virtually no effect whatsoever. And one of the things that people overlook with the flurry of uh, media attention being paid to this is, you know, all these bills that are being put out there, they are talking about protection and how they're using the data and how they're safeguarding it. But very few um, policymakers are actually talking about how the data is being collected in the first place. Um, and that's mm-hmm. that's the elephant in the room. So as far as data sharing and, you know, black matching goes, I think companies are taking more concrete steps um, to protect user data. But the reality is that outside of the GDPR, I don't think there's been a lot of impact. Because we have failed to get a federal level privacy legislation, Scott. In fact, we had some. The you know the Obama administration had put in place some some laws that were going to take effect for ISP tracking and things like that that were struck down by the the next administration. Why why do you think there's such resistance to federal privacy regulations in the United States? Oh gosh, well there are numerous factors. Um, so privacy is a bipartisan issue. Um, everybody's aware of that. Both sides of the aisle. Everybody says that they want to protect consumer privacy. And that's true. However, the Democrats and Republicans have entirely different approaches to this. So Democratic bills are based primarily on federal laws being um, a floor. In other words, what it means is the federal law will provide some base level of protection and the states can provide stronger protections if they so choose. Mm -hmm. The Republican approach is they want federal laws to be a ceiling. So... Uh, In addition to that, what that means is that puts an end to state-level regulations, which is what the ISPs want, um, Comcast, Verizon, and so on, absolutely want um, the federal law to be a ceiling. But in addition, you know, the the Republicans are also calling for market-based solutions. You know, very few market-based solutions are out there, so that's been um, a little bit problematic. They're more than eager to to talk to us and hold us up as one of those. (laughs) You know, so... Anyway, what all this amounts to is there's a lot of sand in the gears, and I think mm-hmm. that there will be privacy legislation. It would be optimistic to say next year. I think the next, the following year, maybe in 2021, that's more realistic. It's going to be a while, and I think it's going to always be far behind what's actually happening uh, from a technological standpoint. So, you know, another factor though that really affects this a lot things that I see on a day-to-day basis, are the big tech companies quietly lobbying to fight all privacy regulation, which threatens their business models. So you don't hear a lot about this. They don't draw attention to themselves, but you'll find, like, you know, at the state level, meetings just get canceled. You know, nobody shows up. Um, don't show up today. It's hmm. not canceled. It'll be next month. And then next month, it doesn't happen. It's another month, you know. And this happens because a lot of lawmakers have connections to these companies. So... It's, it's a combination of, of factors which are uh, preventing legislation from passing right now. Yeah, and, I, you know, and I've definitely heard the, you know, one of the arg- arguments that a lot of the Republicans will make is that you know, the reason we want a federal 
ceiling, not a floor is because we don't want all these companies to have to deal with this patchwork, you know, this, you know, 50 different solutions for or th- or things they've got to comply with. And yet the, the thing that always gets me, though, is that the Internet is global. I mean, so even if there was a single federal standard for, for privacy, there's still a hundred and some company or countries around the world that are going to have their own policies. So that, you know, that seems that, that argument seems to fall flat with me. What, what, what did your take on that? There's some validity there. Uh, realistically, it would be difficult if there are, you know, 50 different sets of laws to comply with. So there is some merit to that viewpoint at the same time saying that there should be a ceiling and nobody can enjoy stronger privacy protection. Um, other than that, recommended by a bunch of, frankly, out-of-touch lawmakers, people who are not technologists mm. who don't know what's possible. Um, these aren't necessarily the best people to be um, creating policies around this, right? And they do try to pull in experts, but I think it's lacking. You know, I was in Washington in March uh, talking to uh, a couple of the senator offices, and, you know, I was not impressed with their level of technical know-how. You know, about mm. what was being done here. There was, you know, one or two exceptions, uh, but in general, though, they're they're really not technologists; they're they're legislators. Sure. All right, so let's get some of the, the nitty gritty, and and these are not things we haven't covered before, but I'd love to get your perspective on this and and hear what you what you can tell us. So, let's let what sorts of things are being collected about us? Let's talk. Let's start with the basics, and then and how are they obtaining this data exactly? Now, obviously, you know, we've talked about cookies, and that's kind of what we're familiar with. This is something we've all kind of learned begrudgingly over the years. So, but we, we, they've moved way beyond cookie tracking. So tell us a little bit about what kind of things are being collected about us and how. Oh boy. <laughs> so we can, we can start with browsing history, right? So your browsing history is collected by third parties using pixels and beacons on various websites. That's all piecemeal together, bought and sold and traded uh, by different data brokers and aggregators. And the more that data that they can piece together and map, the more valuable it becomes. And in effect, everybody's browsing history um, is public knowledge and is available in databases uh, throughout the world. So um, ISPs also gather your data. They sell to advertisers. They do things like DNS sniffing, which people are aware of. And they also do things like uh, sniffing client hello packets and TLS uh, exchanges. So even if you are using encrypted DNS, that's really not enough. Your ISP can still see what websites you're going to. Um, moreover, they know what devices you have. Uh, let's just say you plug a uh, connected glucose meter into your home network. Well, your ISP now has that data, and that's now in the ad ecosystem, and they all know that there's a diabetic located in your home. Because they could see like where you're, where that device is talking to because they know that these devices talk to a certain server, and that's how they know? Yeah, that's I easy. hope that the communications are encrypted. Well, well, that's actually the easy way, um, but there are ways to sniff packets and identify individual devices. In fact, there's some open source projects on GitHub you can find um, to not decrypt, but at least to identify all the medical devices on a mm. um, particular gateway. Wow. Uh, I, antivirus companies sell your data. Um, for instance, a lot of people <laughs> are not aware of that. Yeah, so, uh, you know, I personally purchased quite a bit of data from the antivirus companies, um, not on individuals, I was aggregating it, but um, what I learned about it was kind of disturbing. Um, so they typically have this feature called, you know, safe scan or something like that. Mm-hmm. Essentially, they check every URL that you visit, and they say whether it's safe or not, and they block it, which is great, right? What's not great is if a company comes in and pays enough money, when they detect that you're there, they'll scrape the page, 
and collect it and sell it back to whoever wants it. So, mm. you know, this is an example of, you know, how you can get people's Amazon shopping cart data, all their purchase history. You can get it through the antivirus companies. And that's all done through arm's uh-huh. length divisions. Uh, you're probably familiar like VPNs. You know, they collect and sell data. Not all of them, um, but a lot of them. I'm aware of a global network of VPNs under different brand names based outside of the U.S. And what they do is, you know, they they position these as either free or cheap VPNs, and they aggregate all the user data and sell back to the advertising industry. It's really common. Wow. We've heard about shadow profiles on Facebook. A lot of that's fed with syncing cookies between, you know, retailers and other websites um, with Facebook and AdNexus and other ad tech companies. So even if you don't have a profile with most of these companies, and 99% of them you don't, they still know who you are and they're collecting data on you. Um, another one that we just recently discovered here was router companies. Oh, I have an awesome router. I love it. I'm not going to say the model, um, but it's a great router, um, really high speed. And then Winston figured out that it was spying on everything that was happening in the network. So every URL was being sent to this third-party oh my uh, God. company, yes. And so we blocked that. Holy smart crap. TVs. Wow. Yeah. yeah smart oh, sure. TVs. That I've heard. Sure. I mean, that's the, that's the wiretap. Right. So between that and Alexa, we're we're actively bringing these wiretaps in our home, you know. And you could just look at the the articles out there, smart TVs, and how uh, one company just got fined. They settled with the FTC for tracking individuals' ages and demographics who were watching TV at what time and grabbing this info about them. Um, we actually found a service on my TV, uh, which is looking for copyrighted material, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, that's being displayed on the TV and tries to send back this information to a third party. So there, there's all kinds of things that can go on for a long time. Wow. Oh, yeah, that is, that is spooky. I, the router thing, that is, I mean, that's, it's like, it's, it's like your ISP or whatever, or your VPN provider. I mean, they, they see, they see everything. So if your router's starting to tattle on you now, you're, <laughs> you're in trouble. Right. Right. All this data that's being collected. You said that you were able to obtain some of this data yourself. Some of it was hopefully anonymized and aggregated. Uh, that's, that's one of the things they always fall back on. Oh, it's anonymized. It's all this data is all anonymized. It's just aggregated. It's not personal. Um, and yet, <laughs> Uh, obviously there, because there's been a lot of stories recently about like location tracking and things where with enough money, which and not a lot, like a couple hundred bucks, supposedly you could go to the right. If you know where to go, you could say, I want to find out where this person's been and get their, uh, like the location history. How, so how hard is it? Do you know if I wanted to, let's say I wanted to, I don't know, I was jealous and I wanted to spy on my girlfriend or, um, I, I'm a political operative and I want to get oppo on, on the, on the opponent. How, where would I go and how, how much would I need to spend to, to get a, a full dossier on someone's internet profile? Wow. Uh, so I've never tried to do this, so I don't know what the market rate is for somebody's internet profile. <laughs> uh, I had a company based out of the middle East a few years ago, try to sell me a de-anonymized file essentially showing all the URLs, browsing history, um, the individual's names, all that, you know, and they were willing to sell that to me at a blanket price. It was, gosh, it's been a few years. I want to say it was around $15,000, but it was, it was everybody. Like you couldn't just pick and choose, you know, so you Mm. can get this file, but investigators commonly subpoena VPN and tech companies for, for email and other records as a matter of course. Right. Um, and they have to comply. There's no choice in the matter. So if they're collecting the data and they have it in their logs, they have to hand it over. Um, employers, they're similarly obligated to turn over network activity, email, and other records. With a valid warrant, you're saying? Yeah, absolutely. 
Absolutely. Subpoena okay. typically. Um, and, okay. and this is, you know, a lot easier and a lot more revealing. If you ever do any you know, personal business or activity on an employer network, including your employer's VPN, if you're using that, um, all that traffic that's on your computer now goes through your employer's VPN and through their network and where it's logged and stored, right? And it's vulnerable to right. being accessed by third parties. So what about just, you know, regular private investigators as opposed to, so we're talking about, you know, there, you know, there's law enforcement where hopefully the warrant's in place and, and that's, you know, that's part of our constitutional process, you could argue. But for just like, I've heard that it's possible just for citizens or private investigators who know the right people or, you know, with some minimal level of credential to, to get access to some of this stuff too. Do you, do you know if that's possible or is that just like a myth? Um, I don't know anybody who does that. I do know it's definitely possible. I know people in the tech industry who, for lack of a better word, they sling data around um, to get around the corporate bureaucracy, you know, and they'll pipe data through, you know, various internal systems and so on. And it's, it's not protected, right? It, these files sit on people's mm -hmm. desktops and it's absolutely conceivable. Somebody has a lot of data, they can access it. This is a question I've always had, and hopefully you're in, you're in a unique position to help me understand how how exactly is this information being monetized? Like, you know, what information is actually valuable, and what sort of prices? I mean, like, you know, actually, there's a there's a new bill that, that was put in front of the Senate just like this week, I think, where they want it's called the Dashboard Act, and they want to require firms in their financial statements to actually say what this what the dollar value of the data they collect on people is. But at a more personal level, like you know. What are they? What is it about me that they really want to know, and what is that actually worth in some sort of a dollar amount? If if you know, well, I I can't tell you what the dollar amount is, and I and I know about the bill that you're talking about. I think that there might be other things associated with that bill that aren't being reported yet. It seems to me to be a little bit of a futile endeavor, maybe a dog and pony show, um, because the fact is. You know, it's sort of a point of curiosity for most consumers. It's not going to change their behavior in any way. So the question is, you know, what effect does this actually have other than, you know, forcing some accountants at tech companies to go through some <laughs> academic exercise, right? You know, maybe they'll look at different demographics and say, hey, you know, if you have, uh, um, you know, red hair, uh, maybe you're worth this much. And if you have blonde hair, you're worth this much. You know, that's not really that useful or actionable. So I'm not putting much weight on that bill. So the fact is though, the information is being monetized primarily by the ad tech and insurance and travel company ecosystem. And data aggregators, what they do is they collect either directly or indirectly through third parties as much data as they can, and they try to match as much of it as possible. Um, you know, so a typical match rate as of like, about 18 months ago was around 3%. So out of all the data they can collect and buy, 97% of it will fall out because they couldn't match it. And that was like a big mm -hmm. area of research. And so you could think of the more they can match it up, especially when their match rates are so low, the more they can make from it. And so when they match that data up, they feed it into the ad ecosystem and they use it for targeting. And this all happens instantaneously through what's called real-time bidding. So as a result of that, you know, you have a list You'll, put, you'll feed it into one or more ad networks, and if somebody uses that as part of their targeting, you'll earn fractions of a cent every time they use it. And you know that's where a lot of the money's made. So uh, that begs the question uh, for me, uh, are targeted or these quote-unquote behavioral ads 
uh, are they really that much more effective than old style demographics based ads? I mean, we've been dealing with for centuries with ads um, that were demographics based, right? If you want to target housewives, you put an ad in Good Housekeeping. If you want to target men, you put it in Playboy or some other sports magazine or something. And you know, newspapers and w obviously you know, had advertising departments before they ever knew who was looking at a particular ad. So, you know, basically for centuries, we've been forced to look at ads, but it's only until recently those ads were watching us back. So why can't we just go, I mean, since privacy has become such an issue, why don't we just go back to where things were? Was it really that much worse with, with, with uh, the, the classic advertising slogan is, you know, we waste 50% of our money on ads, but the problem is we don't know which 50%. And this is trying to solve that. But given the privacy implications, couldn't we just go back to the point where the, where the ads weren't watching us, where they were just based on demographics? I mean, how much more valuable are they really? They are a lot more valuable. Uh, the more we know about you, the more susceptible you are to being influenced. So let me give an example. Imagine this happening you know, 10,000 times over. Uh, there's a company out there. Again, I can't say the company name, but they brag about having the location of every mobile phone user in the U.S. within 10 feet and 60 seconds. Right? Wow. And what they're doing, that by itself is not that special. You got to remember, this is... That's, you know, kind of the starting point where technology was, you know, two or three years ago. And you're not going to believe the next thing that comes out of this guy's mouth. <laughs> this, that story gets even weirder. Uh, and it's going gonna, it's gonna to blow your mind. Some of the things that we talk about in the second part of this interview, I was, I was even shocked at. And I thought I'd heard everything at this point. So you're, you're definitely going to check out part two of this interview. In the meantime, if you'd like to learn more about the Winston Privacy Box, which we will get into in more detail in part two, when we talk about, you know, what we can do and uh, about guarding our privacy and how his box fits into that picture. You can go to Winston Privacy right now, winstonprivacy.com, and you can get some info on the box. You can see what it looks like. There's also an, uh, a link there where you can go and pre-order it. Um, but of course, you know, you might want to wait until we talk about it more in the next, uh, the next episode. But if you're curious, you can go to kind of take a sneak peek now and see what's coming up. And we'll, again, we'll be talking about that more in depth uh, in the next interview. And just to be clear, I want to let you know that um, this is not an infomercial. I don't get any kickbacks from this guy. Uh, this is just a really cool product and it's something I want to call out. And I, you know, you know me, I always want to try to support companies that are trying to do the right thing and trying to help the rest of us out and make it easier for us to guard our privacy. And this is, this fits squarely in that category. Uh, and you'll find out more about that when we talk about it next week, but that's going to wrap up our show today. Thanks for listening. Uh, again, uh, if you would, if you haven't done so already, I would really love to get some positive reviews on Apple, uh, iTunes for this podcast. It helps get noticed. Uh, the more reviews it has. So I would love to get some of those if you don't mind taking a few minutes to go do that. Uh, and of course, you can always find more information on my uh, website, firewallstonestopdragons.com, where you can find information about the book. You can see my blog. You can sign up for my newsletter. Uh, you can find my list of favorite privacy and security resources. There's all sorts of good stuff there. If you're inclined to kick it up a notch, you could also go to patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com. That is where uh, I do try to recoup a little bit of my expenses for this. So if you'd like to support me a little further there, uh, I would very much appreciate that as well. If nothing else, just to, you know, take a look, uh, go to patreon.com and just search for firewalls. Don't stop dragons. You'll find my page and you can find out more info there. All right, folks, that's it. Thank you very much for listening. Tune in again next week for part two of our really cool interview with, uh, Richard Stokes. And we'll learn about his privacy box, Winston privacy until then stay safe and don't get caught with your garbage down.